Well, good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you're joining us online, thank you for being with us also. I was going to um, stand up on the young adults thing, but I couldn't get out of my chair. <laughs> so I can do that. Hey, if you are joining us online, we're going to be celebrating communion after this message. So if you go ahead and plan, go get what you're going to do, um, you'll be ready. So as a kid, I loved sports. And so if I could find a friend, we were playing uh, wiffle ball, plastic ball, home run derby in the backyard, or we were going one-on-one, or we had hockey nets, or depending on the season, I was playing some kind of sport. When I was with myself, though, I had to come up with uh, other ideas. And so spring and summer, baseball was a sport. So I would um, stand in our driveway, and we had a brick house that we rented. And I would throw the ball off the brick side and catch it and throw it and catch it and throw it and catch it. And my dad said, hey, yeah, I noticed you're doing that with a hard ball, and there is just one window there, would you consider using a tennis ball? Because if you hit the window, it won't. No, can't do that. Because, Dad, it's not the same feel. It's not the same in your glove. It's not the same throw. Yeah, but if you put it through the window, yeah, but I won't. I, I'm accurate. And, and so I went day after day after day. I was good just throwing this thing and throwing this thing and throwing this thing. And then you get kind of mindless and unaware. And then one day, what did I do? Right to the glass. And that happened, I don't know, early morning, 10 o'clock, something like that. I thought, this is a long day. My dad gets home about 5. This is not going to go well. I'm not, I'm not enjoying this day. Why was I not enjoying it? Because I had been made aware. I had been talked to. And I was without excuse. Why don't you try the tennis ball? No, I can do it. No, 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 I can do it. And now I've got a face... The one who told me. Well, I think that's a little bit of the picture of us before God. If we were to walk around here and be honest and ask each other, you know, according to your moral code, we're not going to talk about the Bible here, just your moral code. Have you broken your own moral code? Well, yeah. You're guilty. I'm guilty of what? Of sin. And we pull out the Bible, then we're without excuse. Well, to his credit, my dad handled this well. I got a little bit of a tongue lashing, and I had to cough up a little bit of cash, and I had to help fix the thing. But, but what's our hope with a holy God? In light of our sin, for which we have no excuse, the, what hope do we have? That's what I want to talk about this morning. So you got a Bible, if you'd open it to Isaiah 40, as Nate mentioned. We'll go through about the first 17 verses in this passage and ask the question, what hope do we have in light of our sin? As you can see here, we're in the middle of the Advent season, or Advent series, second of four messages. We're going through a devotional. Uh, I'm taking passages right out of the devotional. And what we're hoping to do with this message is to get us to slow down, which is hard during Christmas because life speeds up, right? You got gifts, you got parties, and you got God, you got your mother in law coming, and you want to slow down. Slow down, why? To think again about the season and what happened. God, infinite, eternal God, took on human flesh. Why? Because you and I are without excuse. He came to earth 
to be among us that we could get to know him, knowing full well that after 30 years working in, as a carpenter, he would go into public ministry, he would have three years, uh, the crowd would turn on him, he would be unjustly accused, convicted, terms in quotes, in a mockery of a trial, and in the process whipped, beaten, spit upon, and eventually executed as a common criminal in the most heinous form that humanity is known of, of execution, that of, of a crucifixion. I hope we don't let that slip by us this season, in the business of the season. So we want to talk about, think again about this hope we have. And, and this theme of God's people having hope in light of their sin is not new, and it, it's picked up in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet, Old Testament prophet, wrote probably 700 years or so before Jesus came. And it's a book with his writings, his sayings in the Old Testament, appropriately named Isaiah. And here's the back story. Isaiah ministered when the, the kingdom of God was united. And, and at the beginning of his ministry, Assyria was the world power. And they were on the move. And the king Ahaz, by this time Israel divided north and south of the kingdom, but the northern king Ahaz, well, he was... He was in conversation with Assyria, and Isaiah came and said, look, look, don't do that. Don't put your trust in a foreign king. In fact, God has sent me and said, I will give you any sign you want to show that I'm with you. And Ahaz said, no, 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 I'm not, uh, yeah, I don't want to put God to the test. So he said, but what happened is Ahaz had worked out a treaty with Assyria. Well, guess what? Assyria broke that treaty. They came in, and they consumed the northern kingdom, and it would never return as it was. And, and in fact, they came right up to the walls of Jerusalem, when God worked supernaturally to throw the army into confusion and spared the southern kingdom, which included Jerusalem, uh, the tribe of Judah. Well, as things go, there was a new world power on the stage after Assyria. They were replaced by Babylon. And Hezekiah was the king, and he didn't learn from Ahaz's mistake. He tried to buddy up, if you'll let me use that word, with, with Babylon and in uh, Isaiah 39, he brought them in and showed them everything he has just to what I could have to offer you. And at that point, Isaiah, called by God, goes to King Hezekiah. And here's what he says in chapter 39, starting in verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. So it's future. We're probably talking Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah's looking 100 years or so-ish into the future. The days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. He's predicting, 100 years before it happened, the invasion of Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Verse 7. And some of your sons who will issue from you whom you will beget will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. You're going to live as refugees in Babylon, which is now modern-day Iraq. That's bad news. But this happened. You should have known better than to be dinking with a foreign power and not trusting in God. And as a result, the nation is going to suffer. You have led this people in, in this way. Though Hezekiah was a, considered a godly king, he didn't get this part right. Well, Hezekiah dies, and he's replaced by his son Manasseh, who is a wicked king. So by the time Isaiah writes chapter 40, he no longer has the ear of the king. He's speaking 
privately to the people, to a small group of people who are still following God. Here's what he says in chapter 40, verse 1. Big change. Remember, we've, we've talked about a coming invasion. But now he says, comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort? Why would you comfort? Well, verse 2, here's why. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hands double for all her sins. These two verses, in my opinion, point out the very perfect nature and character of God. He is holy and he is righteous and he will judge sin. And if we're honest, we want to know that there's ultimate justice. Imagine we live in a, a county or a city in which criminals, though they are apprehended by the police and they are convicted in, trial, in court, the judge says, yeah, I just don't, I don't have the heart to sentence you. Boy, that, that's not too much of a deterrent. I mean, we're going to have chaos. We need to know that justice is at hand. So in one sense, God is just. He will judge everything. We will all give an account. On the other hand, he is long-suffering. He is patient. He is gracious, and he is merciful, and his character comes completely together in him. And it's ultimately expressed in Jesus, this work of God. So, the hope we have, I want to suggest, is most manifest in Jesus. So in one sense, we have God promising to do a great work in ultimately releasing his people from captivity in Babylon, but it, it foreshadows an even greater work. That's the sending of his son. Well, let's continue with this, what's going on uh, 700 years before the time of Christ in verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Now look, when a, a king or a dignitary came to visit and you knew they were coming, you cleared the path. If there were rocks, you removed the rock. If there was a curve, you straightened the path. If there was a pothole, you fixed it. So metaphorically, we're talking like, let's get ready. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And let every valley be lifted up. Here's the path. And every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here's the rest of the book of Isaiah. We're not going to go through it today. God says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go into captivity. And in fact, it happened in 586 B.C. It's going to last 70 years. Then I'm going to raise up a new king, a new world power, Persia. And they're going to have a king and his name Cyrus. Now remember, God is calling this shot 150, 200 years before it happens. And Cyrus of Persia, though they are a pagan culture, a polytheistic, he is going to value religious freedom, and he's going to say to the Jewish people, you're free to go home. And in fact, in Isaiah 45, God names Cyrus 150, 170 years before the fact. Now, critics of the Bible will say, you, that is why you have to know that Isaiah was written after the fact that a prophet of God can name him, to which I answer, that really depends on your view of God, doesn't it? See, in my view, God sits outside of time, like an author writing a book. And he can see forward, and he can see past, and he can change. He's not, he's not limited. So for him to look 170 years ahead and call a new world power and call the leader by name, yeah, that's, that's no thing. So let me put it in context. 
Does anybody want to take a guess at who will be our president in the year 2040? 2060? Uh, God's got that. I mean, we don't even know the names. We don't even know who's going to be applying. This, this is the God we serve. And he said, I'm going to do a mighty work that will eventually free you. Are there consequences? Yeah. But will you find ultimate freedom? Yes. Why? Because I'm above it. Well, 700 years after Isaiah wrote, Jesus came on the scene. We're, we're celebrating his birth. He was God who became a man, born for 30 years, worked as a carpenter, and then went into public ministry. Before Jesus went into public ministry, before Jesus' time, Israel had not heard from a prophet for 400 years. There were 400 years of silence. They hadn't heard from God. So God thought it'd be good to, to get the people ready. So he sent a guy named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist basically told the people, hey, get ready, God's going to do a work. And, and so John is this wild guy preaching in the desert, living on locusts and honey. If you want to lose weight, that's a great way to go. Wearing all kinds of different clothes. And, and the people are going out to him. And so somebody says, who are you? What's your deal? And John the Baptist quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. And the gospel writers use that, Matthew and Mark use that. He's a voice calling the wilderness, this. And so it's prophetic. John the Baptist said, yeah, there was a great work in the time of Isaiah, but there's an even greater work. God is going to do something among us. Well, as we go back to Israel's situation at the time Isaiah was ministering, he's offering comfort, comfort, oh, comfort my people. But the people might say, yeah, but... You know, we're going to go into captivity to Babylon, and Babylon's this mighty force and this mighty power. What about them? Well, verse 6, God anticipates that, I think, and here's what he says. Uh, a voice says, call out. And the answer, what shall I call out? Here's the word, okay? All flash, flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, people like the Babylonians. The grass, like Babylon or any other world power, that withers. And the flower, the beauty, the military might, well, that fades. Well, what lasts? The word of our God stands forever. So you're getting uptight about this and that and what's going on? You're getting uptight about Babylon. Look, that, that, that'll, that'll come and it'll go. It'll come and it'll go. I think that matters because some of us, well, we're living the consequences of our choices. And, and we would admit, Andy, I did some stuff and now I'm in. And, and what about, what about? And maybe what you've got going on, the health issue, whatever you've got, it's, it's, it's nothing. It's just life and, and it's fallenness and, and you're, you're dealing with that. Or you've got a broken relationship. God says, I'm sovereign over that. That will come and that will go. But my word will last forever. Your hope, my hope, is in the very character and nature of God. And I want to look at that character again, nature again in verses 9 through 11. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. You're representing God. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah who are going into captivity, here is your God. Behold, the Lord will come with might, with his arm ruling 
for him. Behold, his reward is with them and his recompense before him. God is awesome, but he is also, besides being powerful, he's also like a shepherd. He will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. There, this all-powerful God is compassionate and he is a shepherd. And he is most seen in the character and nature of Jesus Christ. You know, we're going to do start the book of Revelation. I think it's going to be the last week in January, so I'm working through that. And there's a part in there where God comes back. And this rebellion and these people who push back, Jesus, all-powerful Jesus, will put that down. He will set up his kingdom on earth. His recompense. He will rule. But he is also, John 10 says, the good shepherd. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Our hope is in this very nature in the person of Jesus. So we're asking this question, what hope do we have in light of our sin? Here's what I say. God never quits caring for his people. It's most manifest in Jesus, but God never quits caring for his people. So particularly in this season of Advent, we sang the song, Emmanuel, God, with us. Not the God who's bailed, not the God who's angry, not the God who's checked out, you've got no excuse. No, 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 no. We're talking about God with us. That's the hope we have. Are we, are you and I without excuse before God? Yeah, we absolutely are. We absolutely are. But our hope is in the character and the nature of God. He never quits caring for his people. And still, though, we're, we're people who can worry about what is going on and, and, and the obstacles before us. And, and for Israel, what's coming up is, is this nation of Babylon. And I'm sure God instructs Isaiah to write with that in mind. So he writes in verse 12 this. Who has measured the waters? We're, we're talking hyperbole metaphor to show the awesomeness of God. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hands? So let's get the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Indian Ocean together. And it's, it's all right here. It's all right here. And marked off the heavens by the span. You talk about the galaxies and the solar system. And, and God kind of measures those, kind of gets a slide rule out, gets his ruler out. And, and he, they're just a, a tiny measurement for him. And calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and, and weighed the mountains in a balance. You ever been to the Rockies? Summer 84, I went up to Colorado from the state of Texas for the first been first time in Colorado. Remember, Texas is as flat as this stage, and we're out in Fort Collins, and we spent some time out in Breckenridge, and, and I get experienced the rock. Oh, man, they were awesome. Okay, those Rockies, God, he just he weighs them in a scale. That's, that's the size and the immensity of our God, and the hills in a pair of scales. That's the power of God. Now, I think these next verses talk about particularly God at creation. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or has his counsel has informed him? That's a rhetorical question. No one. With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him in knowledge? And informed him of the way of understanding. So you've been here a few weeks. You know I 
the last couple of months I've had cataract surgery on both eyes. So I've been interested in reading about the eye and just how it works. And, and it's, it's pretty amazing. And when they took that patch off the first time, it's really, oh, it's really different. Oh, you got more light getting back there. Well, who, who designed this thing? Well, well God did. I remember watching a, a debate between a theist and an atheist. And, and, and the theist said, you know, we talk about evolution. Tell me how the eye evolved. Remember, you, you, something born as no eye, and then you're going to get the eye. And how, how does that how does that evolve? Not a good explanation there. Well, how did the eye happen? Well, well God God designed it, and and that's just one one part of our body. Um, well, who did he consult with? Did he? I mean, he get on Wikipedia to do this? What what did he do? Did he Google something? No, no, he just spoke it into existence. My older brother's an obstetrician, and when he was in residency, he would have 36 hours on and, and 12 hours off, and so mostly he was at the hospital sleeping, and, uh, and he would get a call. He was down in Ben Taub Hospital in Houston. They just second most babies in the country, so you're being woken up all the time, and here's the, the, the vitals we've got presenting, and I said, well, what's that like? You're, you're woken up, and now you've got to deliver a baby. He said, well, you know, Andrew, most times it, your, your vitals, it, it, it's looks like a routine delivery, but if, if it's even close to like, oh, these, this is off or that off, I'm consulting. I, I'm calling. This is, this is what I've got. I'm calling a colleague. This is what I've got. This is what I'm thinking to do. Does that make sense? And if I don't, I, I'll call a second. But he, he said, I'm not afraid to consult, which is good. But when our world was created, God didn't consult. <laughs> he, he just, he was perfect. He just, just did it. And, you know, I just talked about one part of the human body, but the whole world, he, he just did it. So what is it in your life that God can't handle? That's what Isaiah is trying to get at for us. Verse 15, I'm going to talk about the nations again because they're going to talk, Israel's going to go under this power. But the, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. So we talk about China and their army, and we talk about Russia and their army, and we talk about the U.S. military and their army. Uh, the, all, all, all that is it's like a drop in a bucket. And are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. I'm going to speak of Lebanon here. One nation, pick them out. Even in Lebanon, talking about sacrifice, it, heavenly forest Lebanon is not enough to burn. Nothing to offer to God. Nor is beast enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They were regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So Israel, your concern about Babylon is unfounded. Because the nations are as nothing before him. God is trying to bring this nation back to him. Stop looking to idols. Idols, any place we look ultimate for ultimate life, God wants to be the center of our focus. Verses 18 through 20. To whom will you liken God? That's a rhetorical question. There is no one. Or what likeness will you compare with him? I'm going to talk about their idols here. As for an idol, which you bow down, you, you choose to replace God with this. A craftsman co costs it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. These are, these are made by humanity. He was too impoverished for such an offering, selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Israel, you're foolish 
You're foolish, foolish to bow down to an idol. They're created by humanity. Why would you trade that for God? Well, Andy, that we're sophisticated. We don't do that anymore. Oh, no, 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 but we create our own idols. And I would say at Christmas, we create uniquely Christmas idols. And at the bottom of these idols, in my estimation, is this need for human approval. So what are you talking about? Well, i got to buy you a gift, and I want to impress, so I want to make sure I get the right gift, right? And I'm coming to your party, and there's, but there's two or three parties, but I want to show it yours because I want you to like me here, maybe not. And then I'm serving Christmas dinner, and you know who's coming. You know what's the bottom of all of that? The need for human approval. If I get the right gift, if I serve the right food, if I go to the right party, if I wear the right outfit, if I blah, 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 then maybe you'll think more highly of me. And boy, won't I feel good about myself for a moment. But then I've got to keep working to get your approval. And, and do you see, I'm not free. I'm enslaved. I can't enjoy Christmas because I'm worried about the right gift, the right thing, right, 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 right. And just as we say, you're foolish to bow down to those idols created and crafted by humanity, you and I are foolish to bow down to our more sophisticated, term intentionally in quotes, idols of things like human approval. If I need your approval, I can't enjoy you because I need you. And boy, if you don't show up, then I... The principle holds. God has called us to Him that we could be free, that we could enjoy. And, and like Israel, we fail. Like Israel, we make covenants, just like they did with Assyria, just like they did with Babylon. We put our trust, we misplace it. And yeah, there are consequences to that, but is there hope? For our sin, yeah, there always is. Because God is, though He's righteous and He's holy, He's also long-suffering long patience. His character is perfect. Our hope is in Him. Shortly after we got married, I took summer Greek, and then that fall, I started as a full-time student at Denver Seminary, and I had a dear friend who saw a need in our life, and we didn't know we had it yet. Um, this friend's roommate's company was upgrading their computers and they were selling their, their uh, older models. So he bought one and he gave it to us. It was a 386 for those of you. What you not even a penny. But it had word processing and shortly after that somebody gave us some software for AOL. So we were able to send emails which we thought was kind of slick. Yeah, you did AOL. Okay, good. And I didn't realize how much I needed or how much I could benefit from a computer until I started seminary because you've got to do all these papers. And I'm, I'm still kind of living in the typewriter world where if you do something wrong, you've got to get white out. Maybe you have to do white out or you've got this tape you put in. And you, you don't have to do any of that. Well, the word, I thought that's pretty slick. It's great. I make a mistake. I just backspace and I can save. And, it's just, and then your footnotes, it footnotes for you. It puts you right down there. It's got software to do that. It's two thumbs up. Well, we get about six weeks into the semester, and we're, we're cruising along, and, and uh, we're liking our, our email. But, you know, the, the computer seems to be running a little slow, and, and uh, I say, Hope, you know this is kind of running slow. Yeah, I, you know, Andy, I, I think it is. I'll, I'll take a look at it. You think you're okay to look at it? Yeah. And so she starts 
you know, I mean, she does this, she deletes that, and she does this, and okay, let's see how it works. And we turn it on, you know what all we got? We got a little light that goes beep, beep, beep. We can't get anything to load, we can't do any. And remember, we are novices, we don't know jack about computers, except they are good for word processing, and you can do email. That's all we know. And now it won't work, and I've got papers due, and I'm like, I really need this computer. Well, she was working with a campus ministry called Campus Crusade, now known Crew, uh, now known as Crew, and one of the campuses she was at was at the Colorado School of Mines. And the Colorado School of Mines, they're all brainiacs there. And it's a tech school. So she asked around, here's what we did. And we got some nice sophomore young man who says, yeah, I think I can fix it. I mean, we don't have. Great. Will you come down? Yeah, I'll come down. So he just, we had two bedrooms. And he just went in the, what was the office, the second bedroom. And, 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 and we said, boy, if you need anything, you tell us. He said, I will. And he never talked to us once. And, and he did whatever he did for two hours. And voila, our computer worked. And it was kind of like, what can we pay you? Because we really needed this. Oh, I don't want any of your money. This is just a, a, you know, I'm happy to serve you. I think we got him a gift card or something. I don't know. But I cannot tell you how much we were totally dependent on this young man. I really need that computer to work for me to go on in seminary. And I really don't have a solution on my own. This young man did. That's just a picture of where we are. We have messed up. We really need a relationship with Jesus, to experience fullness of life, to escape the slavery that comes from the idolatry that we so easily fall into. God has made himself and made that available in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate show that God indeed never quits caring for his people. So again, I ask and I answer, what hope do we have in light of our sin? Here it is, the character of God. He never quits caring for his people.